because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 31 through 34. We're taking a, a short break. We'll be right back in Matthew next week. But here in Luke 22, 31 to 34, we have a fascinating text describing a conversation on the Thursday night before Jesus is crucified Friday morning. So he had just talked to his disciples. He had his last supper with his disciples. Judas has now left to go, um, to go call the cops, so to speak, the authorities, to arrest Jesus. Judas takes them to the upper room, presumably, doesn't find Jesus there. And so he starts looking and trying to figure out where Jesus is. Jesus has taken, since then, the 11 disciples with him, and along the path, he has this conversation with Simon Peter, one of his disciples. Luke twenty-two thirty-one says this, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. Father, we pray that you would enlighten our dark minds, illumine our minds to understand your word. We pray that you would grant us grace to worship and treasure your son, Jesus, now. We pray that you would give me your spirit's power to speak not only what is true, but to rejoice in the truth in ways that are appropriate to the glories of this passage. We pray that all of us who are hearing, including myself, as we hear your word, that we would tremble and submit to your word. So we pray now, Lord, for the grace to soften hard hearts, open darkened and blind eyes, and unstop deaf ears, that we might see, hear, and feel your goodness and your glory. Help us now, we pray, because we are desperate for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Guilt is one of the biggest problems in Los Angeles, indeed, it's one of the biggest problems in the world. It's a human problem, the problem of guilt. Everyone has to deal with the problem of guilt. Everyone has to deal with the problem of guilt, not just once in their lives, but regularly, repeatedly, every day. It could be recurring guilt and shame about the same situation, the same sin over and over and over again. Or it can be repeated feelings of guilt over various situations and incidents that are happening throughout your life. We want to talk about how you continue to follow Jesus when you have to deal with guilt. I want to make two clarifications here at the beginning. Number one, there is such a thing as false guilt. You can feel guilty for things you're not guilty for. For example, if you catch me sinning, and you, if I lie, you catch me lying, and I lie, and then you say, hey, PJ, brother, you need to repent for lying. It says this in the text, but I have good news for you. Jesus died for your sins. He'll forgive you. Just repent from lying and speak the truth in love. If you tell me that, and then I get angry at you, and I make you feel bad, and then you start to walk away feeling guilty, you might feel guilt, but if you had done that 
humbly and in love, you shouldn't feel guilt. That would be a false sense of guilt. You have actually loved me and obeyed the Lord in rebuking me. And if you feel guilt there, that's false guilt. In other words, we can feel guilty over non-sins. And I'm not talking about dealing with that. What you do to deal with that is go to the Bible and ask, is it really sin? Okay, so we're not talking about false guilt this morning. The second thing, second clarification, you might feel shame and confuse shame with guilt when you have been victimized. So when you are victimized and violated and someone has committed a crime against you, you might feel, you will feel shame from it. You could feel shame from it. If there's some sort of abuse, particularly um, sexual abuse, things like that, you can and will feel shame from that, but that's not your fault and you should not feel guilty when you are the one who's abused. That's a false guilt as well. And there is shame there, and you have to work through those dynamics, but it's not because it's your fault. It's because of the reality of the brokenness of the sin and the incident. So I'm not speaking of those two things when I'm talking about working through guilt. If you have either of those issues and questions about, is this guilt or false guilt? Is this shame? What about my situation? Please feel free to talk to me or the church family here. That's what we're here for, right? We're responsible for each other's discipleship. We're here to support each other and help each other follow Jesus and to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So please, if that's where you're at, please talk to us. That's not what we're talking about today, though. I want to ask the question, how do people handle real guilt? It's your fault. It's your sin. You did it. Your conscience is pricked. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is convicting you, and you feel legitimately guilty. How do you handle that? How do people handle guilt in the world today? Well, some people ignore guilt. It's not there. So, oh, I I shouldn't feel guilty. I'm just being me, and that's who I am. It's part of my personality. So we can ignore guilt and pretend it's not there. Or some people might just end up in despair and depression over it. They acknowledge the guilt, but they, they can't do anything about it, and so they just get depressed over the guilt, and they end up in despair. That's not the cause of all depression, again, just to make clear. Now, other people might try to make it up to God and do other good things. You know what? I sinned. I feel guilty. I'm going to do really good to this person to make it up. So the way we handle guilt is by some sort of penance of uh, tit for tat. I weighed the scale down this way with guilt. Now i got to weigh down the scale this way with goodness to even out the scales. Or some people rationalize guilt. And they try to think of several good reasons why what they're doing is actually not wrong. They might even use the Bible to justify their sins. Nobody likes feeling guilty, so everyone tries to deal with it. I just gave you several wrong ways to deal with true guilt. Guilt can cripple your life. Guilt actually does cripple people's lives. Guilt can lead to suicide. It can lead to hardness and coldness of heart to commit even more extreme crimes. It can destroy families. Guilt destroys marriages. Guilt ruins careers. Guilt can divide churches and fellowships of churches. And guilt can push those who thought they were Christian, which many in this room think they're Christian, including myself, it can actually push you to turn your back on Jesus Christ. Guilt is a serious issue to deal with. Guilt, furthermore, can tempt you to, new, to, to be neutralized in regard to your helping others. So here you are on a Sunday. What are we supposed to do? To gather together to encourage and stir each other up to love and good works, right? And yet, I feel guilty. 
So I'm not going to be doing much encouraging this Sunday because I feel guilty. I am not qualified to encourage others this Sunday. What do we do when we get it wrong? What do you do when you mess up? What do you do when you're the one who sinned against God and you're the one who brought the guilt upon yourself? No one else to blame, no excuses, you know it's your fault. How do you handle guilt? The main goal of this sermon is this. Despite your sin and guilt, strengthen your brothers. Despite your sin and guilt, strengthen your brothers. And I'm getting strengthen your brothers from verse 32, where that's the last phrase Jesus says in verse 32, strengthen your brothers. Jesus wants you to strengthen people, but what do you do when you're guilty? The point here is despite your sin and guilt, you need to figure out a way to strengthen your brothers. Okay, so we want to talk about how you do that. So there are three things God wants you to understand this morning to work through guilt and failure and sin that cripples you so that you can strengthen your brothers. The three things God wants you to understand this morning is God wants you to understand Satan's strategy. He wants you to understand the Messiah's ministry. And then he wants you to turn back and strengthen your brothers. All right? Understand Satan's strategy. Understand the Messiah's ministry. And then turn and strengthen your brothers. (coughs) Excuse me. So number one, understand Satan's strategy. Understand Satan's strategy. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Understand Satan's strategy. To understand Satan's strategy, you need to understand his methods, and you need to understand his goal. What is Satan's method? Well, what does Satan do here? What's the action Satan did in verse 31? What is the action Satan has taken? Look at the verse. What has he done? What did Satan do? He didn't sift. That was a, that's a good guess, but he did, he's not sifting here. He has what? He's asked. Who did he ask? Presumably, who did he ask? God, right? God the Father. He asks God the Father. Satan goes to heaven or talks to God the Father and asks him for something. Does this remind you of any other story in the Bible? Job. Satan is there and he is asking for permission to take all of Job's wealth and all of his health and and kill his kids and, and, and take everything from him. Here again, Satan asks for permission. In a sense, you could think of this as Satan's prayer request. I mean, if prayer is talking to God and if prayer is a petition, here is Satan's prayer request. God, can I have permission to sift Bethany Baptist Church? Can I have permission to sift this member and that Christian, that person who says they're a Christian? Do I have your permission, God? That's what Jesus is saying, that Satan asks for permission. And what does Satan desire here? What's his prayer request here? What does he want to do? To sift them like wheat. So in the sifting, you put something in a sieve and you, you shake it up and you put pressure on it to separate what you want to discard of versus what you want to keep, right? That's what you do. You put it there and you have to put pressure. There has to be enough pressure, even if it's just gravity uh, with water. If you're trying to separate water from something like spaghetti and you put it in and you just let it drip through, you need some sort of pressure on the sieve to separate what you want from what you don't want. And Satan wants to put Peter in the pressure cooker and to press as hard as God will allow him to press to separate Peter from something else, from the desired content, so to speak. 
So how does Satan do it? What are his methods that Satan uses on Peter and on Christians and on non-Christians to get them separated from presumably being with God? What does Satan do? Well, if we just took a parable like in Mark chapter 4, you know the parable of the sowers where there's seed, which is the word of God, and the sower's throwing seeds over his shoulder and seeds are falling on, on uh on the waste, the roadside, some seeds are falling on rocky ground, some seed are falling in thorny soil, and other seed are falling on good soil, right? You know that story in Mark 4? And the first group, the seed is the word of God, it falls on the road, and when it falls on the roadside, what do the birds do? The birds come and eat it. Eat it. And Jesus says, that's Satan. As soon as the word comes in, it goes right out. Satan has just taken it from that person's mind. They don't think about it anymore. They hear the gospel, they hear the word, it's in this ear, it's out the other, and it's done. Satan has already done his work, doesn't need to do anything else, it's gone. For others, though, they hear the word and they receive it with joy. And when they receive it with joy, the rocky soil, let me see if I should do the rocky first. Yes, the rocky soil, it's like, so the, 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 the plant springs up, but then the sun beats down on the plant, and because it's a, there's a layer of rock under thin soil, the seed, the roots don't go deep, and the sun beats down the plant until the, the plant dies. And so, in the same way, Satan will use. Jesus says those are the trials and the tribulations, and the troubles of life, the persecutions of life. Satan will use pressure, persecution. What we talked about last week, opposition. He will use disapproval of others. Pain, health pain, bereavement, any kind of pain that Satan can use, he will use pain to choke out, to choke you out. That's on one side. But, but what's the other one? The other seed fell on thorny soil. And in the thorny soil, there's other weeds there. There's lots of weeds there. So, so the plant takes the word, receives the word, it grows up, but then it doesn't get the water it needs because the other plants, the other weeds are choking out. They're choking out that plant. And so it dies. And Jesus says that that's not the pain of the sun beating down. That's the pleasures of this world and the worries of life, the cares of life. Choke out the word. Satan will get you with either pain or pleasure, trial or treasure. But he will get you. And some of you are so good under trial that every time you go under the pressure of trial, you just love Jesus more. And it doesn't work. So he, he switches his strategy, and he goes through the pleasure route, the treasure route, because if I can't get PJ to, to, to sin because every time I put hard things on him, he just keeps going to prayer and shares the prayer request with the church family, and he gets on to pray, I can't do it through the pressure. So he does it through the pleasure. Other times, when we have pleasure in our lives, we're like, no, that's a distraction. It's not gonna, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I see, that, I see you, Satan, coming a mile away. That's just a distraction from my walk with God. And so Satan can't get you that way. But if he puts a hard moment in your life, then, then your faith will start to get shaken. And some of us, we just get shaken by both, right? I mean, we don't have a strength. Either way, we just pain or pleasure. And, you know, we're different in different seasons of our lives as well, right? We're not always strong in one or the other. It, it can change from moment to moment and season to season in our lives. The point here is do you understand Satan's strategy? Do you understand that he's going after you with pain or pleasure, and he doesn't always use the same method on you. Satan can use that to choke you out. Satan is mean and nasty and ruthless. Do not underestimate Satan the way Peter does here. 
Satan doesn't fight fair. He doesn't care what rules there are and what rules there are not. He will do whatever he can with whatever leash God gives him to mess up and wreck the glory of God in men and women. He'll do whatever he can to reach his goal. Now, what is Satan's goal? We don't have it explicitly stated in verse 31, but you can deduce it from verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not what? Fail. So Jesus doesn't want Peter's faith to fail. What does Satan want about Peter's faith? He wants Peter's faith to fail. Okay, so what's, what's Satan's goal? Why does he put pain and pressure on you? And why does he try to distract you or put pain in your life? Why? Why? So that your faith would fail. That's it. He wants your faith to fail. He, and here, let me just read back the word. So Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you. The you there is y'all. Y'all 11 or 12 even. Satan has asked to sift you guys. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Peter and all of the disciples, Satan wants everyone's faith to fail. He wants all of the professing Christians' faith to fail. He wants all non-Christians to never have faith that succeeds. He wants to cause all the disciples to fall away from the living God. This is his ultimate goal for those who profess faith in Christ. He wants to cause the professing believer to sin now in trial, but not just sin now. Satan's goal is not to get you to sin. His goal is to get you to sin and then feel guilt. And then take that guilt and drive that into your soul until you have a downward spiral that eventually chokes the gospel out of your heart and out of your life. Peter was a follower of Christ, wasn't he? Didn't Peter follow Jesus? Yes, he did, right? He was very outspoken. Wouldn't you say that Peter's one of the most dedicated of the disciples, the most sold out, the most passionate? Do you think Peter loved Jesus? He did, right? He really loved Jesus. He was confident in the sincerity, I love you, Lord. I'm checking my heart. It's real. I'm not pretending here. I really do love you. So when Jesus says, you know what, Satan? Satan's going to demand to have you. Um, and then Peter says, I'm ready. Look at verse 33. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to what? Prison, Prison and to death. Jesus said that you're going to deny me. And Peter said, no, I'm not. Is Peter lying? Or is Peter being honest? He's being honest, right? He's sincerely saying, Lord, I love you. I mean, he's so honest that when Jesus is arrested, Peter whips out a sword, right? I mean, he whips out a sword to try to, to stop the arrest. I mean, that's how, much, that's how serious he is ready to go to prison and death, right? He's going to cut off a guy's ear with precise aim of the sword, right? Now, he probably aimed for his head and missed, probably, right? But the point here is that Peter was dedicated, wasn't he? I mean, he, he seriously, but, but does Peter pass the trial or not? Does he, does he deny Christ three times? Yes or no? He does, right? He fails in the situation. What did Peter get wrong? Here's what he did. Here's four mistakes he made, according to Dominic Smart. He underestimated the enemy. And you can do that too. He underestimated the enemy. Secondly, he underestimated Christ's comments about his fall. He underestimated Christ's warning. Christ warns him, and he underestimates it. He, he says, Peter, you're going to fall. And Peter looks back and is like, are you talking about me or the other ten? Because I know you're not talking to me. I mean, they might fall, but do you know who I am? Right? So, so he underestimates Christ's warning. Thirdly, and conversely, he overestimates his courage, his readiness, and his faith. And lastly, and most dangerously, at least for me, most dangerously, I think for a lot of you Christians, most dangerously, 
Peter confuses his sincerity towards Christ for his security in Christ. You hear that? He confuses his sincerity towards Christ for his security in Christ. Just because you're sincere does not mean you're secure. Just because you, check, you double and triple checked your heart and you really love Jesus does not mean you're secure against the enemy. Your sincerity is not your security. It's not Peter's. So when he was put in the heater and the pressure was on, turned on to maximum level, he sinned terribly. Then he had to deal with this guilt and his failure. Not only for denying Christ, but puffing out his chest before all the disciples and saying, I'm the one who's not going to fall. Right? And then to look at his Savior. Do you remember when he denied Christ that third time in the rooster crowed? It says in Luke, or this is Luke, but it says when he did it, that he turns as the rooster crows, and who does he see? The first eyes he sees after he denies the third time. Who does he see? Jesus in trial being beaten through a window. You deny him the third time, you hear the rooster crow, the first, first turn, and who do you see? Just so happen to see in the window at the distance, the eyes of Jesus. The guilt, the conviction, the shame of his failure had to be great. Now, when this shame and guilt happened to Judas, when he was put in the heater, what did he do? Did he feel guilty, yes or no? Yes, he betrayed Jesus. He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. When he was tempted, he gave in just like Peter. But, here's, but when, when Judas was convicted of a sin, well, first of all, was Judas convicted of a sin? Did Judas feel guilty? Yes, he did. So what did he do? He runs to the temple. He takes the money back. And what does he do? He throws the silver back. I don't want this blood money. And they look at him and be like, well, that's your problem, you know? And so Judas runs off. And what does he do? He hangs himself. Judas felt guilty. Peter felt guilty. But when Judas felt guilty, Satan's method of pressure, first pleasure, money, Right? And then the guilt comes. And then the pressure of the guilt. Now the pain of guilt. So first pleasure, then pain. See the combination here of Satan? Pleasure first, get him to sin. Now put the pain on. The guilt presses on Judas to the point where, did his faith fail? Yes, his faith failed. Jesus calls him the son of destruction. Judas is in hell today. And his faith failed. And so Satan did not only deploy his strategy, his method, Satan succeeded in his goal. With Judas. Now, there have been pressures and pains in my short life and ministry. And I look out here, and I know many of your stories. And as I look at you, brothers and sisters, I don't even have to know you, but I do know many of you. I know that there have been many pains and pressures in your life. I felt the guilt. I remember when I was a youth pastor, not even a youth pastor, just a youth leader who was somehow responsible for teaching Bible study every Friday to the high schoolers or junior high. I remember um, as, a high, as a high school senior, or as, a, as a college freshman, teaching Bible study and feeling so guilty over my sin, over my, at that age, at 19 years old, giving into lust and not really having self-control and not knowing how to handle that. And then I have to teach Bible study later that day or the next day. And I would just think, what am I doing here? And, and Satan would just put the pressure on. Am I really a Christian? What is wrong with me? I've gotten knocked down and had Satan rub in my guilt over and over, pushing me to despair. And I trust 
that some of you have experienced the same. Has your hypocrisy ever crippled your ministry? We need to understand our enemy. We need to understand his strategy, his methods, and his goals. Peter understood it. Listen to Peter as an old man. Here's a young, confident Peter, right? What about Peter as an old man? 1 Peter chapter 5, this is what he writes. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Was Peter humble here? No. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Listen. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Do you, know, do you think Peter knew what he was talking about here? You think he's just hypothetically, theoretically talking about the roaring fierceness of Satan? Or do you think he's speaking from experience here? He's speaking from experience, right? He knows what it's like to fall and to feel the guilt and the despair. And he warns us as a, as a godly older brother from experience, brothers, humble yourself. Don't be so confident in your sincerity that that's your security. Humble yourselves before the Lord's warnings. Take heed lest you fall. Do not underestimate your enemy and do not underestimate the, the warnings of our Lord and his word. Satan distracts you with pleasure and with his invisibility even. He, you don't even know it's, he's part of the factors when you're in your trials, but he's there. As a church family, what does this mean we should do for one another? Is Satan only attacking you or is he attacking your fellow church members? Is he attacking your fellow church members? Do you love your fellow church members? Yes, you do. So watch out for them too. Don't just watch out for yourself. Watch out for each other. Bethany Baptist Church family, you have a responsibility to watch out for each other's souls because Satan is on the attack. All right, so if Peter's strength to persevere in life and service doesn't come from within, if it doesn't come from your sincerity, I mean, what else do we have, right? I mean, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. From love flows all of these other good works in our lives. If, if I can't trust my own love for Jesus, what can I trust? Where, where am I going to get strength to move on in my ministry if I can't have my security in my sincere love for Jesus? Well, there is a better option when you fail and you're inconsistent. Despite your sin, strengthen your brothers. How? Point number two, rest in, not yourself, but rest in the Messiah's ministry. Now, who's the Messiah? Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. And so we rest in him. Now, when I say rest in the Messiah, that's point number two, right? Understand Satan's strategy, rest in the Messiah's ministry. If you're going to rest in the Messiah's ministry, you need to rest in two things about the Messiah. Number one, rest in the person who prays for you. Look at verse 32. Let's read 31 and 32 again, just to get the contrast. Feel the contrast here in 31 32. Okay, look at your Bible. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Satan has asked, but I have prayed for you. Satan has prayed to sift you, but I have prayed for you. Satan has asked to sift you, but I have asked for you. See the contrast? It's not Peter versus Satan. Who is this versus Satan? Jesus versus Satan. Satan prays, Jesus prays. Who prays for you? Jesus prays. Rest in the person who prays for you. I myself, if, if you're translating the Greek literally here, there's an emphatic way it's structured. Satan has asked to sift you, but I myself have prayed for you. He puts in an extra word, not just I have prayed for you, I myself have prayed for you. He's emphatically saying, Peter, I am on your side. Satan's against you, I am for you. Satan prays against you, I pray for you. It's me versus him. 
Rest not in your sincerity, Peter. Rest in me. Rest in the person who prays for you. Now, this says, I have prayed for you, speaking of Peter. Does this apply to you? I mean, is your name Peter? My name is Peter, but I'm still not Simon Peter, right? <laughs> so so um, we have to be careful when you read the Bible. You don't always apply everything from a story directly to yourself. When Jesus says to Peter, come out and walk on water, does that mean when you go on a boat, you read your Bible and you're doing your devotions on a boat, and Jesus says, come out and walk on water, and you're going to apply the words, so you're going to step out and walk on water? You're going to try that? Is that, a, is that a valid application of the text? No. So when you read stories, you have to be careful to make sure you're not applying something to you just directly if it's not biblical, right? Satan can get you that way. So, so does Jesus pray for us? I've already preached saying he prays for you. Let me show you the Bible verse. Hebrews 7.25 makes it crystal clear that Jesus prays for you. Listen to this. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says, he is always able to save those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is able to save you to the end because he always lives to pray for you. So yes, Jesus prays for you. So are you resting in the person who prays for you? Jesus is persistent with his prayer. He always is able to save. He's accepted by God because he's able to save. And in Hebrews, he's the high priest who prays for you. Do you know that the high priest has three roles? He is to pray for you. He's to represent you to God and represent God to you. And he's also to make a what? What else is a priest supposed to do? Make a what? A sacrifice for your sins. And does Jesus pray for you? Does Jesus represent you before God? And has he made a sacrifice for you? What sacrifice has he made for you? On the what? On the cross, right? Jesus dies on the cross for your sins and covers all of your sins. Not one denial, not two denials, three denials. All of your sin, Jesus covers on the cross. He becomes the propitiation, bearing the wrath of God and bearing the judgment of God for your sins. In Christ, we are brought near to God and counted as blameless, considered righteous in Christ. So brother, sister, rest in Christ's cross as you struggle with guilt and sin and your inconsistencies. Instead of running away from Christ in shame, run to Christ in your shame because he is for you. He prays for you and he has died for you. If you're not a Christian, this is the sweetest news in the world that Christ has died for your sins. You don't have to go to hell for your sins. Every sinner will go to hell to the lake of fire for their sins if they are not forgiven. Everyone in this room, Christian or non-Christian, professing Christian or non-Christian, you will go to hell for your sins if God does not forgive you. But God will forgive you if you trust in Jesus Christ and turn from your sins because Christ died for you. Amen. And he will pray for you and sustain you to the end. So I call on you if you're not a Christian to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. The, the truth of this Passage reminds me of the song that we sing sometimes. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there 
who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Christ died for us. Amen? Amen. If you're not a Christian, how do you deal with guilt? You don't, have to be a non, you don't have to be a Christian to have guilt. You just have to be human with a conscience, right? How do you deal with guilt? Jesus is inviting you to find cleansing from your guilt in his death and his resurrection. So rest in the person who prays for you. But don't just rest in the person who prays for you. Rest in the prayer he prays for you. Rest in the prayer he prays for you. What does he pray for you? Look, look, let's go back to verse 32. Luke 22, 32. Notice what he does. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you return, strengthen your brothers. Notice what he doesn't pray for. You see what he prays for there? What does he not pray for? This is interesting. Jesus doesn't pray. Listen up here. You guys need to get this. Jesus doesn't pray that Simon doesn't, won't be sifted. He doesn't pray that the trial will go away. He doesn't pray for safety. He doesn't pray for an easier life. He doesn't even pray that Simon won't sin. He doesn't pray, God, when Satan sifts him and that little girl comes up and says, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? God, please give Peter boldness to stand up and say, yeah, I am. So? Yeah, I'm one of his disciples. Jesus doesn't pray for that. Is that strange to you? That's strange to me. Jesus, why are you not praying that he doesn't sin? Why don't you pray that the trial goes away? You did teach us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. Why are you not praying that, Lord? He's not praying it here. He doesn't pray for Satan to go away. He doesn't pray that the people who might be curious, hmm, he, he sort of looks like one of those disciples. I'm going to ask. No, I shouldn't ask. Yeah, I should. No, I shouldn't. He doesn't pray, God, make their curiosity go away so that they don't finally ask. He could have prayed that. Doesn't. One author wrote this. God allows the sifting to take place. He allows us from time to time to experience the heat of the battle. Not as something that God would rather wasn't in the Christian life, but which is regrettably inevitable, so God better make the best use of it but rather as something that is essentially part of following Jesus and being made like Jesus in every respect. Jesus allows the sifting. Jesus doesn't always pray for the sifting to go away. What does he pray for here? And what does he pray for all the time? Look at verse 32 again. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not what? Fail. Fail. There's a prayer. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He prays for... Now, okay, time out. Look up here for a second. When the lady 
and the guard, when, when three people ask Peter, Do, are you a follower of Jesus? And he says, no, I'm not. The last one, he starts cursing. He puts his bio, hand on seven Bibles. I swear to God on all of these Bibles that I am not a follower. When he swears, he starts cursing and swearing. When he does that, is he acting in faith? Yes or no? Is his faith succeeding or failing at that point? Failing. So did Peter's faith fail? Did Jesus' prayer fail? Because Jesus prayed that Peter's faith wouldn't fail. Did, did Jesus' prayer fail, yes or no? No. Now you're right to say no. Why not? Because Jesus' prayer is not that his faith would never fail in any instance. His prayer was that Simon Peter's faith would not ultimately fail. You see the difference here? The prayer is that his, his faith would not ultimately fail, but his faith would endure to the end to enable him then to turn and strengthen his brothers. Now, did Judas's faith fail? Yes, not just in regard to betraying Christ, but when he felt the guilt, did, his, did he come back to Christ or did his, did his faith end or did, it, yeah, did his faith go away before or as he passed away? It went away, right? His faith failed. But Jesus here is not praying that you won't ever not sin. He's praying that your faith won't ultimately fail. Jesus knows the sifting and Jesus knows exactly what to pray for. And Jesus will hold you fast so that your faith does not fail. Don't we sing that song? We sing, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, did Satan prevail here on Peter? Yeah, he did, at least in that situation, right? When the tempter will, would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. And even if it's hot, he will hold me. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so he will hold me fast. Jesus prays that your faith will not fail. Now, before we get to our third point here, we're done with our second here, but let me just transition to our third point. Let's think a little. So, number one, understand Satan's strategy, right? Number two, rest in the Messiah's ministry. And before we get to number three, we just need to think a little bit more theologically here because there's something awesome and mysterious about God's sovereignty in the second. Is God in control of all of this? Yes or no? He's in absolute control of every detail? Yes. Okay, he's in control. Now listen to this quote by Dominic Smart. Somehow, within God's sovereignty, Christ is going to let Peter lose a battle. He's actually going to push Peter out to a point where the battle is very hot and he's going to let him lose. So that, why? So that returning from this particular battle, wounded, bloody, broken and utterly defeated, he can then find out how to win the war. The battle ahead of Peter and the battle ahead of the rest of your life is not a picnic. Your Christian life in this church and with this church in this world, as we talked about last week with suffering and persecution, it is not a picnic. It is a nightmare of heartache, brokenness, death, sin, pain, and guilt. Amen. That's your future. God has in mind Peter's and our ultimate holiness and happiness in him. And God will put us in the fire to refine us for his glory and for the spread of his gospel in the ministry of strengthening brothers and sisters. 
I don't know what you brothers and sisters are going through exactly right now, this moment. But the sifting has to happen. The shaking has to happen. The pressure has to happen. Whether it's a tough situation at your house, in school, at work, in the neighborhood, or in the church, the sifting will happen. It has to. God will wean you from depending on and finding satisfaction in yourself or anyone else around you. He will, make, he will take it away from your family, your church, your society, your finances. Whatever you find your security in, God will push, push that crutch off and cause you to wrestle with the fact that you need to lean on him and on him alone. Amen. As for Peter, it had to happen. The sifting, the falling, the returning. Not just for Peter's sake, but for the disciples' sake. And for the sake of everyone, even here right now, who is hearing the echo of Peter's life and death and the grace of God in Peter's life. It had to happen to Peter. He couldn't, you can't just memorize a Bible verse and then get it. You can't just memorize the verse, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And then all of a sudden you get the lesson. It's not just, you can't just go to seminary and get a master of divinity. And then all of a sudden you get it. You can't just teach it in a Sunday school class or preach it from, a, uh, from the pulpit and then you get it. You can't do it that way. That's not how learning happens. You have to live it. You have to experience the heat of the fire so that when you strengthen brothers and sisters, you know what you're talking about. Amen. His repentance and his restoration was the unfailing faith that Jesus prayed for, which would empower him for his future ministry of strengthening his brothers and sisters. And just so we're clear here, you don't, this is not the misapplication. I can almost hear an objection or a, mis, a distortion that Satan might use in our church. Don't compare your trials to other people's trials. They'd be like, well, mine's bigger than yours, so you don't know what you're talking about. That's not the point. The point is, have you felt the, the, the heat of guilt? Have you wrestled with despair of feeling guilty in your Christian life and being unfaithful to Jesus? Do you know what it's like? You can be 13 years old and know what that's like and encourage a 38-year-old like me or a 68-year-old like some of the other members of our church. So when I'm talking about feeling the heat of the battle, I'm not talking about how old you are. I'm talking about do you wrestle with the satanic pressure of guilt and shame and have you cling to Christ through that? Then you know what you're talking about. All right, last one. So understand Satan's strategy, rest in the Messiah's ministry, thirdly and lastly, it's verse 32 again, the end of verse 32. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So what's this point three? Turn from your sin and guilt and strengthen your brothers and sisters. You're like, PJ, you don't need to preach that. It's just right there in the Bible. You're just, making, you're just repeating the Bible. Yes, that's kind of my job here, right? To repeat the Bible and just tell you what the Bible says. So the third point is literally turn back from your sin and guilt and strengthen your brothers. Jesus assumes with confidence. I, I love how Peter's confident, but isn't Jesus equally confident? Jesus is so confident. Hey, you have the worst enemy in the world going after your soul, Satan. And yet, I am supremely confident that your faith's not going to fail. I'm so confident. I'm not saying if you return, but what? When you return. Because Peter, guess what? You're going to get up. I prayed for you. I'm about to die for you. You're going to get up. And when you get up, you strengthen your brothers. That power, that confidence is what Peter would use to strengthen his brothers and sisters. Peter had to learn to not lean on his own strength, but on the confidence of Christ, 
on the work of Christ, on the strength of Christ. Peter learned that the way, to, the way back to Jesus is not by your boldness and sincerity. The way back to Jesus is by your humility, your confession of sin, and your repentance. That's the way back. Humbling yourselves before God calling out your sin, owning your sin, taking personal responsibility without excuses for your sin and asking God to forgive you for your sin. That's how you turn back. As long as you're making excuses, you're still leaning on your own strength, right? So um, we sang this song with our, church, with our family in our family chapel devotions this week, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. And I felt like I had to explain the fourth line to my kids after we sang it. And then during our prayer time, one of my kids prayed it back to the Lord. And I was so encouraged by it. It stuck in my head. So I want to encourage you with it. Because this is what you need to turn back. It's verse 4. Let not conscience, feeling guilty, make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. What do I mean by, what does he mean by fitness? Not physical fitness, working out. Nor, uh, don't, dream of, don't dream of being so spiritually fit that God will accept you. Don't, don't dream of fixing yourself first so that God will accept you. Okay? Let not your guilt make you linger, nor of your spiritual fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth, this is such a sweet line, all the fitness God requires of you is to feel your need of him. Amen. Isn't that sweet? You know, what, you know what God requires of you to come to him? Feel that you need him. Just feel it. Just feel that you failed. You sinned. It's your fault. And that I need you, Lord. I, I need you. That's all he requires. And when you feel that, you can come to him. As long as you're resting in your own strength, you're not coming to him because you don't feel your need yet. But when you fail, like Peter failed, you learn to turn back to God. You learn to repent. So brothers and sisters, I'm calling you non-Christians here. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior. Rest in your union with him. God graciously will forgive you. It's the kindness of God that leads us to what? Repentance. Not the strictness of God. Not him wagging his finger at you with his arms crossed. That's not what leads people to repentance. It's the kind invitation. Do you feel your need? Because I'm here with my arms wide open. Just come. Just admit it and come. This will keep you from being a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is not sinning. Hypocrisy is acting like your sin is not a big deal. Or not dealing with your sin. So if you're going to, let's say you just got caught lying yesterday. Going back to that lying analogy. Let's say you got caught lying yesterday and one of our church family rebuked you. And you, and then the next, and I heard about it. The next day you come to me and you catch me lying. And then I say, so what about you? You lied yesterday, didn't you? And didn't they rebuke you? And you might feel like, oh, now I can't say anything. I'm like, you're a hypocrite. But are you, does that mean you shouldn't correct me? You should correct me. But, but how, do you, how do you save yourself from being charged as, as being a hypocrite? Here's how you save the charge. Have you repented? So if I repented from lying and you saw me get rebuked yesterday and I rebuke you for lying and you say, PJ, you lied yesterday and they rebuked you. you are, who are you to tell me? And I'll say, I am nobody to tell you. But God is somebody to tell you. And you know what, brother? I know what it's like to be you because I lied yesterday and God convicted me of my sin. And I'm calling you to, the same, to experience the same goodness and grace of God that I experienced yesterday. Is that hypocritical? No, it's hypocritical if I say, if I say my lie was not as big as yours. That's, a, that's, a, that's hypocrisy, right? Or, no, I didn't lie. That's hypocrisy. But if I own it and then rest in Christ, now am I free to actually engage? Yes, yes right? And that's what we need in our church because it's not just turn back, turn back and what? 
Strengthen your brothers. Brothers and sisters, look around our church family. Everyone in this church, everyone in this room right now needs strength. Do they not? Amen. They need strength. They need God's strength. And they need some of that strength to come through you. But you are dealing with guilt in your own life. I'm trying to free you from that guilt so you strengthen them. Our church will be weak and will we'll die if we're not strengthening each other in the grace of God. And so you need to deal with your guilt. You need to stop pretending. You need to stop making excuses. You need to truly, deeply, thoroughly repent. And then you could look another sinner in the face, not with any pride or self-congratulation, and just say, I'm a poor beggar, and I found some bread. Brother, let me tell you where there's some bread. Amen. That's all. When you get a church family made up of those types of members regularly repenting, Who's going to want to miss a Sunday when you come together with a bunch of sinners to strengthen each other rather than pretend that we're strong in and of ourselves? So brothers and sisters, turn and strengthen your brothers, testifying not of your strength, but of Christ's strength in you. God cares not only about your restoration, he cares about using you to restore others. And if you're going to be a leader, every Christian, I'm saying every member of our church, you need to do that to strengthen your brothers. You need to turn and teach people not from your victory, but by your defeats. Have you noticed who are the most helpful people in your life? Those who always get everything right and they tell you you're getting it wrong? Are those the people who help you the most change? Or is it those who can sympathize with your failure and yet still love you with the truth? I mean, who, who really is the most helpful people to you, right? Who do you gravitate towards? You gravitate towards those who own their sin can sympathize with you and yet speak the truth and love to you, right? So God, I'm, even in my prayer, God save us from being a, a church of performance where we're just calling each other out and acting like we're better than others or that we haven't had sin in our own lives. Let us be a humble, repentant church. And if you're going to be a leader in this church, here's the qualification for leadership from this passage. Leaders are lead repenters. Leaders are lead repenters. The ones who will lead most spiritually are the ones who repent most spiritually. And the ones who will be the least helpful in strengthening brothers are the ones who least repent. Right? I mean, is that what the text, is that an implication of the text? If you need to repent before you strengthen brothers, the less you repent, the less helpful you are to strengthen others. Right? But the more repentant you are, the more you mourn over your sin and get the comfort of Christ, the more able you are with full integrity to strengthen others in the strength of Christ, not in the strength of you. Amen. All right, brothers. So that, that's, that's, what I'm calling, that's what I'm calling you brothers and sisters to do is to turn and strengthen your brothers and sisters from your own repentance. So to summarize, I want to change my main goal. My main goal was despite your sin and guilt, strengthen your brothers and sisters, right? That was my main goal. Despite your sin and guilt, strengthen your brothers and sisters, let me change it now that I've preached the message. Because of your sin and guilt, strengthen your brothers and sisters. Or if I was getting a full sentence, because of your sin and guilt and Christ's restoration of you, strengthen your brothers and sisters. Does that make sense? Guilt is not a license to disengage from others. It's an impetus to drive you to others. God, drove, God gives you these trials for your good and for the good of our church family. So to summarize, how are you going to do that? Understand Satan's strategy, rest in Christ's ministry, and then repent regularly and strengthen your brothers. Brothers and sisters, the battle out there is hard and the enemy is fierce. 
The attacks are relentless. Guilt is real. Guilt is recurring, and it must be dealt with or it will kill you, literally. You have only one hope of living and serving correctly. You must rest in Jesus. You must look at Jesus. For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ, says Richard Sibbs. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, Richard Sibbs said. Is that a sweet sentence? There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. So repent and trust in Him in your personal life and in your walk with God. Find your security in Christ, cling to Him, and then turn around and strengthen others, even non-Christians. Strengthen them as well by gospelizing them as well. There are many who need the strength of Christ in this gathering right now. There are many who are being sifted by Satan, and they need the strength so their faith doesn't fail, and they need you to speak to them today. With all the tasks and responsibilities that lie ahead of you in your life and ministry, you must be able to rest in Christ and find strength in Him and sing songs like the song we're going to close with. Let me quote the song. This is my favorite hymn. Still my favorite hymn. Um, others have challenged it lately, but this is my favorite hymn. And we're going to sing it, but let me say it here because it, it wraps up the message, I think, perfectly. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Listen to this verse. Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. He, my strength, my victory wins. Jesus, I do now receive him. More than all in him I find. He hath granted me forgiveness. I am his and he is mine. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Father, thank you for your son who is with us to the end. May we rest in him and in the prayer that he prays for us. Hold us fast, and may we rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a minute now to talk to the person beside you.